Welcome to EdTech Adventures. Join us as we explore the role of technology, STEM, and creative play in education. With expert guests, we'll discover how learning is always an adventure. From baking to computer science, computational thinking skills are needed across a wide variety of careers. Our guest, Kiki Protzman, will share her vast knowledge of how computational thinking can be fostered in students from ages 5 to 105. Kiki is currently the Director of Education for Microsoft Make Code, and is also known for creating Code.org's wildly popular K-8 computer science fundamentals curriculum. Beyond that, she's written coding books that target everyone from pre-readers through senior educators with even more exciting projects on the horizon. Kiki, thanks so much for joining our podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'd like to start the podcast off with a request that you describe a memorable education experience that you've had as a student. Ooh, I love these kind of questions because they really make you think back to what touched your soul, you know, what made you love education. Mine actually happened in math because I didn't take computer science as a young kid. They didn't have it back then. And my teacher was and still is a comedian. So my math teacher was very funny and he used humor in his classes all the time. And he taught us about things like bridges and why bridges stand and how we can mathematically make great structures, you know, and just, just thinking back on the way he taught and the way he made sure that we were connected, not just through the subject material, but through the tone that he set in the classroom. That's something I think about all the time. And I really think that holding onto that idea of tone is so important. How did his comedian background shine through his teaching skills? He, he had a very expressive face and he made it okay to be ridiculous, really. And I think when you're learning something new, that is vital to be okay with feeling like you're doing something that other people might think is silly. It gives you a lot of power. I don't think people understand how much power it gives you to be okay being wrong or worse being ridiculous. I still keep in touch with him today. So I do the same with my favorite teachers too. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Mad Kids. <laughs> Anyways, how did you become interested in teaching kids how to code? I became interested in teaching them how to code because I wasn't having the experiences I wanted to have learning to code. So I went into computer science in college and I intended to go into animation and be able to make the impossible happen in movies. And someone was like, oh, that's computer science. You have to learn how to code. And what I was seeing, I was like, um, this is nothing like what I wanted to do. <laughs> but somehow I stuck in there, even though I was one of only two girls. And then I went on to get my master's degree and still hadn't had any of these experiences that I was looking for. At some point I decided, okay, I'm not going to be able to get through a path to making amazing special effects in movies because my school just doesn't offer that kind of stuff. So I'm going to make utilities. I'm going to do products that help people, you know, software that people can download for free that, that will make their taxes easier or, or whatever. I don't know what I was thinking, but during my, my master's program, I'm realizing again, 
I'm one of only three women in a program of 100 to 150 people. One class, there were literally 99 guys and me. And you walk into the classroom and everybody looks at you and you just, you feel it, you know? And I remember thinking, why don't people realize how expressive computer science is, how coding is like poetry, how when you're looking at someone else's code, you can tell who they are as a person by the way they comment, by the structures that they use, you know, it's so individual and, and people just don't get that. So I started thinking, what do I need to do to help other people understand that this is fun and it's creative and it's expressive. And I did a lot of research and found that at the time, everything was leaning towards mentorship. Mentorship is what you need. But I dug deeper and was finding that it's not just having a mentor in computer science. It is really having exposure to it when you're young. So certainly if you have a parent or someone who does it, you've got exposure when you're young. But also if you just know it is something you can be doing when you're very young, then it's something that stays in your mind as something you might do when you grow up. And there was no curriculum for that. There were no classes for that at that very young age back then. So I wrote some and I decided that if we were going to get kids to do computer science when they were young, we first had to prove that kids could do computer science while they were young. So I took some stuff I was learning in my master's program, like finite state automaton and, you know, that type of stuff and translated it down to a world that kids are already living in and then asked them to navigate that world. And you know what? They did it every bit as well as any of my college friends could have. And that turned into a whole set of curriculum. And that turned into what became code.org's CSF curriculum for K-8, then down to K-5. So that's what it was all. The world was my Petri dish, really. It sounds like it. I mean, your curriculum sounded groundbreaking at that point. And it's interesting that you said, hey, you proved to them that these kids could understand. Did you get pushback in the beginning when you were positing that, hey, this is going to be an important thing to pursue to make proper impact in, in younger kids' lives? I got so much pushback and, and from places I wouldn't have expected, really. I went to a conference that was meant for K-12 computer science. But at that time, when they said K-12, they really meant high school and middle school was playing with scratch and they had CS unplugged already, but really nobody was even thinking about elementary school. And I, I remember going around and introducing who we are and what our focus was. And I was like, and I want to bring computer science to elementary school. And there was a chuckle from the audience. Like, oh, she hasn't been here long. She doesn't realize that that's just going to be impossible. And then the person who went after me was like, and I want to introduce computer science in utero (laughs) and just completely made fun of this. And that kind of stuff, I got to the point where it could kind of roll off my back. But I remember a president of a very prestigious college came to the university UVO where I I had gone on to start teaching. And I was also in the the beginning stages of developing Thinkersmith, which was my computational nonprofit. And I got the chance to talk to her. She sat right by me at lunch and I said, Hey, here's what I'm doing. And we're going to bring computer science to kids. And it's going to be so great. And she said, no offense, honey, but 
don't you think that it might be better to join the people who are trying to get computer science into high schools because they're starting to make progress and it's something that you could actually make your mark in. And I said, well, no offense, but I think you guys got this. I mean, computer science is coming to high schools. You guys are good with this. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody wanted to take it when they got there? And she just the same thing, just kind of nodded her head. Like you don't understand how slow schools move and this is never actually going to happen. But uh, I guess kind of code.org was a blessing in that respect. They came in with lots of money and lots of gumption and made some changes pretty quickly. So I was in my lifetime able to see computer science come to elementary school. And I have to say, I just appreciate so much what y'all have done. And we've seen it in our work where Code Combat, we teach text-based coding. And before it was, oh, probably recommended for high school kids. And it's constantly being pushed back earlier and earlier, middle school kids. And now we have upper elementary kids coding because they've gone through code.org content, like the content you've created. So there's almost acclimated to the concept of coding from an early age, they're ready to try on Python and JavaScript also at an earlier age too. So yes, yeah. yes. And I'm with make code now and we start with block-based coding and we're able to flip to uh, text-based coding with JavaScript or, or Python. And it is crazy just in the last couple of years, it's harder to find people to test this out that have never done any block-based coding, which who would have thought that, that we'd be in this place where by the time you get to middle school, you've had some experience with coding. And then we're also to this place where when we're introducing blocks to kids in middle school or high school, they're now like, oh, that's for kids. And there's college courses that use block-based coding. It's just that I sometimes compare it to a coloring book. If you are coloring as a kindergartner, then when you get to middle school art class, you don't expect someone to put a coloring book in front of you, right? That's what you did as a, a little kid. And then when you're grown up, you understand the technique behind it and the reason it might interest you again. And I think the same is becoming true for block-based coding. You learn it as a, a little one. So when you're in middle school or high school, oh my goodness, this is for little kids. And then it's not again until you're older that you realize, oh, I can use this as a very powerful powerful tool. Agreed. And throughout this entire experience, I've seen you work on other content and products and books too. I've seen this thread of computational thinking throughout your work. So for the audience out there, could you define for us what are computational thinking skills? Yeah, absolutely. Computational thinking as a definition actually changes depending on who you're asking and whether it's in an educational space or an actual computational space, but at the heart, it's this ability to kind of look at problems in a way where you can use things you already know to solve a problem that you haven't seen before. And so at a very high level, we have what I call the four pillars. You have uh, algorithms, which is basically just step-by-step instructions, right? You have the pattern matching. So the ability to say, oh, this looks a lot like that. You have the abstraction, which is the ability to kind of ignore the details for a little while so that you can look at the big picture and find something that you can bring the details back into later. 
And then decomposition is where you pull a problem apart into little bitty pieces. And so the way this is useful is really how anyone solves any problem. You say, oh, I have this problem. Take, for example, cleaning my kitchen. I, I need, my kitchen's got to be clean. It's a lot of work. I don't want to just look at the kitchen and go, oh my gosh, it's got to be cleaned. You got to say, okay, I'm going to pull it apart into pieces. I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to clean the counters. I'm going to sweep and mop the floor. And then each little piece becomes much, much more manageable. The same is true with big problems. Usually any big problem can be pulled apart into little pieces that then become more kind of tameable. And then you look at that piece that you've now tamed and you say, Hey, what does this piece remind me of? Like, at the heart, there are very few kinds of new problems. So everything looks a little bit like something else. And so you look at that and then you say, well, it looks like this other thing. Okay. I pattern matched, except for those details that are different about those two things. You say, all right, well, if those details weren't different, how would I use what I know about that one to solve this one? Okay. So now I have a way I can go about solving it. Let's go ahead and put those little details back in and account for them in my solution. And then finally you say, okay, now I understand how to put it through step-by-step so that I can actually solve this problem. And so those are all the steps of problem solving in those kind of four pillars of computational thinking. Yeah. I often I'm cleaning the kitchen and going, wait a second, this is a lot (laughs) like how I clean my closet. (laughs) How can we transfer those skills? And then I also have noticed a lot of people often swap coding or computer science skills with computational thinking skills. So could you describe what the difference is between computational thinking skills and coding skills? That feels like a trick question. Um, (laughs) You can, I understand. There's also similarities. So you can yes, start with yes, that too. <laughs> yes. I, so, I mean, at a, a very high level, when you think of coding skills, you think of kind of writing in a language that's made to talk to computers to create a program that's going to do what you want it to do. And so the art of actually coding and writing that text, maybe you don't need a lot of computational thinking to write the text, but to figure out what to write and how to get that program to do what you want it to do, that is computational thinking like at its finest. The, the computational thinking is the technique. It's like um, if you were going to sew and you had to figure out, do I want to you know, put a straight stitch in here, use a serger and curl the hem a little bit. There's these techniques that you need to pull from time to time. And computational thinking is one of those techniques that you just pull over and over and over again when you're coding. It sounds like if you didn't have computational thinking skills and you just had coding skills, I don't know where you would be. (laughs) You would be somebody that gets told what to do. Really, if you didn't have the ability to kind of use those computational thinking skills, you would hope that somebody tells you, do A, B, C, here's what I want you to do. And then you better not introduce any bugs because as soon as you have a a problem to solve, you're going to have to have someone else do it for you. And it's guaranteed you're going to have bugs. That's just hundred percent. 
<laughs> part of the engineering work. So you said you now work at Microsoft Make Code. How does computational thinking play a role in your current job? Computational thinking is really at the very heart of what I do, not just because I write the curriculum and you know the, the products that require you to use these things. And we don't actually jump into it as computational thinking in what we create right now. We, we don't call out the individual steps. But that aside, I'm constantly faced with trying to do something that's not being done in that same way already somewhere else. One of the unique things we have as an educational product is that we're going direct to student, not necessarily to the classroom. So we have to figure out how to do something for a student directly in their home. And so I can use those computational thinking skills to kind of say, all right, well, it, it, learning looks a lot like learning, uh, but there are these differences. So what can I pull from what I already know how to do coding in the classroom and bring it to a student at home? I've grown to love computational thinking as a way of solving all problems. So I pretty much utilize it anywhere. And as a result, I never feel like I'm stuck. I always feel like there are multiple ways to go because something similar has been done before, but then that just makes me a little bit more dangerous because I don't give up. <laughs> it's must be such a refreshing feel to know that nothing's too intimidating because of that decomposition piece. You said mm -hmm. you can always break it down into smaller chunks to tackle, right? Yes. Yeah. And then you have to put on the persistence, which isn't generally accounted for in computational thinking, but it is a huge skill in computer science. Just the ability to fail eight times and get up nine, that type of thing where you keep trying and you keep trying other things and then you just don't take it personally if you don't get all the way. Put those things together and you have someone who's pretty unstoppable. I like how you practice what you preach. I've run into this too, where we're trying to instill persistence and growth mindset with students. And I've worked with teachers where we put them in the middle of a coding activity and they're afraid to make a wrong answer. And we have to pause and say, wait, what would you want your students to do in this point? Would you yeah. want them to give up or keep trying? And, and I like how you're doing that too with computational thinking, like you're using it to develop your own curriculum too. Yeah. It does get harder. I'm not going to lie. The older you get, the harder it is to let yourself fail and not take it personally, which is another reason it's great to introduce coding to young kids because they're a little more fearless, but yeah, you have to be re-taught to let it be okay to try and fail multiple times. And what are the advantages of developing computational skills, even if you choose not to pursue a career in science or technology? I have started many businesses in my life. I'm a little of a serial entrepreneur. I am taking a pause now because I'm very, very happy where I am with Microsoft. But if I hadn't had these computational skills, then I would have had to pay so much more money <laughs> to start every business I've ever started. Uh, whether it be creating an app for myself that does something or creating my own web page or, you know, any of these little things that I can do, I can tackle my own Excel spreadsheet with macros that let me keep my budget up. Computers are there to make your life easier. And you have a couple of options. You can ignore them altogether, which in this day and age, good luck. 
you can utilize them, but only take advantage of the things other people have made for you, which means you're stuck in what has already happened. And innovation is going to be really hard unless you have a lot of money or you can become a creator of things for technology, make the things you need and innovate without having to drain your pocketbook. And, and that's the one I chose really early on. And I'm encouraging my kids to do the same because if you want to go outside of what is ordinary, you're going to need technology to help you. And so you're going to need to know how to make the technology work for you. I remember in Code.org's curriculum, there were a lot of videos that feature mm. people in different industries sort of embracing technology, for example, uh, fashion design and I think beekeeping was one mm -hmm, of them. Mm -hmm. Could you share some of your favorite memories of those types of videos of how that connected and how people from all sorts of different industries embrace technology? Yes, absolutely. Remember how I was talking about bringing the college courses down into a kid's world so that they could understand the things that are happening. The same thing is true of these big technological ideas that people think are so complicated, but when you bring them into the world of a job, somebody's already doing like the build a sandcastle video from code.org that was on persistence and how you have to have that kind of persistence and people then understand that better. And with the fashion design and the repeat, I think was the video you have uh, this dance troupe and that the troupe is dancing with these lights that go on their suits and then the lights go out. And there's this kind of innovation that happens when you say, I've got a passion and I want to do something within this passion that no one else is doing. And so then you figure out how does technology help me in my world and the world I'm already in uh, make those changes. And and that's kind of what we were trying to help people see with those videos. Right. And it sounds like you have technology example, your coding skills, but the computational thinking is what's going to push you towards innovating and, and pushing the boundaries of what can be done yeah. with technology. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm starting to see this a lot too come out in children's books. So I think it's Josh Funk writes a bunch of kids books that are really great around kind of computational concepts, but also computational thinking. And I'm probably going to have to check myself on this, but his book, how to code a sandcastle, how to code a sandcastle. Thank you. Yeah. It's these kinds of books. They're clearly not kids sitting on the beach with a laptop, you know, it's saying I've got a real world problem. And here are some skills that I can learn through coding to solve this. Or if I learn these skills to solve this, I can then use them in coding. And there's more kids shows starting to come out with these kinds of ideas. And as many educators know, that transfer of concept is one of the hardest things to really make happen with a student. So if we can teach kids from a very, very early age, that they can take stuff they learn about their world and transfer it into another area or take the stuff that they're learning in coding and transfer it back into their world. You're going to have a whole bunch of kids when they grow up that are going to be able to tackle some of the world's hardest problems and it'll be beautiful. Right. And you mentioned children's books. You yourself have written a few 
What drove you in that interest of writing about coding and computational thinking for children's books? When I was really young, I thought I was going to be an author. And I had done all these little books. Some of them I still have today. So I, I always kind of had an interest. But when the first person approached me with the idea for writing a book, I was like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> Are you kidding? I can't write a book. And I, I actually ended up saying, you know, I've got a lot on my plate. And this was for the teacher book, the computational thinking and coding in the classroom. Um, I just can't do that. Sorry. And I turned it down. And so they went to someone else. And that someone else, Jane, who became my co-author on the book said, okay, I will, but only if Kiki writes it with me. And so then they came back and said, she said she'd do it, but only if you write with her. And so I said, okay, well, I guess I'll give it a try. And if I try and fail, then I try and fail. And I wrote it and it was amazing because writing on something you have so much knowledge on, it just kind of starts pouring out of you. And then it's actually harder to make it stop and to edit than it is to actually get it out on paper. So that happened. And then when DK wanted to do its first, my first coding book, a board book for kids meant to be done entirely as a thought process and, and not anything on the computer. They came to me and I learned from that first experience. Okay. I should try. I should see if I can do this. And it turned out beautifully. So then it just kind of started flowing from there. And what do you see the benefits of trying to showcase these concepts in a book versus, for example, the work you've done at code.org or make code? I think they all need to go together. I think one of the problems with something like code.org, which is fantastic, is that it's often used in the classroom and then kids associate it with school. And then they, I mean, maybe when it's novel and you're just doing it on Fridays when everybody's been good, then it's exciting and, and everything's great. But once it gets incorporated into the classroom, it's another topic and kids have feelings about it and they get bored and it's dangerous. It's really kind of dangerous to have that be their only exposure. So the beautiful thing about books and Saturday morning TV shows and magazines and things like that is that they are still magical. They're still fun. They're still novel. And that's what I think their value is. Also with the whole piece of inclusion too, where kids and students will absorb information in different ways, right? So I think it's interesting that you said even uh, TV shows or cartoon shows might be a better outlet for some kids to understand the, these concepts. Yeah. And the really neat thing about books, especially kids' books, and especially things like my first coding book, where it, it's legitimately a board book, is that it starts that process early. So it, it's quite affordable compared to buying a computer and parents can read with their kids. Kids can start to grow into the ideas. And then it's just baked into their brain that persistence is a thing. And and abstraction is a thing. And it's just part of the way they think. All before they even touch their first computer. So <laughs> yeah. your evil plans. My evil plan. Have been revealed. <laughs> so based off of that, you've talked about already your journey, but how have you seen your role in computer science education evolve over time? That's a, a really excellent question. 
I've often said that I feel like I'm living my career kind of backwards because I came right out of school as a professor, well, an instructor. So I taught at the university. I taught in, in a middle school classroom as well. So I kind of taught based off of how things should be. And then I started a nonprofit. I ran a nonprofit for several years, and then I worked for someone else doing coding stuff. So whereas you kind of feel like you build up to these things, the thing I wanted to do and wanted to see in the world didn't exist. So I had to build it and run it and get the world to see that they needed it. And then I could kind of slowly start stepping back and enjoying it and then creating things for the passion of it and for the fun of it, instead of, you know, the, where most people are like, I have to take baby steps in my career and someday I'll get to where I'm doing something bigger, major. And I was okay with that because I was, when I was very young, my dad said, Chris, what you're going to be when you grow up probably hasn't been invented yet. And it stuck with me. I think I was in middle school when he said that. And so I was always totally okay with just, oh yeah, I'm going to put something out there that nobody else has done yet. I don't think that's what he meant, but it didn't phase me. And I think if it had all started now, I would never have been in the spot where I was like, yeah, let's just jump in with both feet, no job, you know, spending all of my savings in order to, to bring this stuff to fruition. So I'm, I'm kind of cool. I'm kind of cool with the way that it, that happened. And so instead of evolving, my career has kind of been stepping back the later I go, which is kind of cool. Yeah. What are the benefits of stepping back now that you've put up almost such a, a fight to get that space that you believed in for so long? Well, I think the reason I'm doing it is because the benefit is not to me. It's really to the kids that are learning right now. And I, I think that when you have one monster that everybody participates with, you get this very homogenous experience, which I don't believe is good for anybody. <laughs> After this thing is introduced and then more players come to the scene, the best thing you can do for the kids you're trying to help is kind of help the other players grow. So there's this healthy atmosphere of all different points of view and examples and ways of doing things. And then that's what becomes really the gift or your contribution to the world is saying, there you go. Now there's something for every learner and for every lifestyle and whatever speaks to you, speaks to you. And then if you want to keep getting involved, you go to the places where really cool, fun things are emerging and you help them grow. And that's what I'm doing right now. It almost sounds like you had to build your own sandbox and that was so much work. And now you just get to step back and see other people play in that sandbox and expand it. And it sounds like you're helping people in the sandbox too. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about that way, but yeah, it does feel like what happened and, and that's cool. And now the world has a sandbox to play with. <laughs> well, thank you, Kiki. I play in that <laughs> sandbox all the time. <laughs> and then speaking of that, even at Make Code and also in your past, whenever you're trying to build curriculum, what do you look forward to the most 
in the curriculum development process? So actually what I told Make Code before I came on was I like the messy stuff. I like to come in when there's a lot that's unknown, when things haven't been tried and true, when there's multiple different ways you can come in and do things. And then I like to figure out and look at the data and see what happens and change things based on the actual users. I think lots of people can put stuff out, but unless you're willing to make changes based on how people want to be using it and how they actually use it, uh, I don't know how much it's worth. So, so I really just like making the stuff you put out better. And I remember when I first started getting lots of data because with code.org, we had millions of users, you know, and so we would get anonymous data from everywhere, lots of numbers showing what was a hit and what was not. And thinking of it as, oh, I failed. I didn't put the right thing out there the very first time when no one else is doing this stuff, man, I should have predicted or something. But then, you know, you take a lesson from your own book and you say, you fail, you try again, and then you make something better and and everything is cool. And so I actually got to this place where I really loved it because you just start to feel like, okay, all right. So people are giving you feedback with how long they stick around or how much they get right or how many blocks they use. And then you can use that to say, this is successful. This is not. Let's make this reach out to them a little bit more, make them like this a little bit more, help this teach them a little bit more. And then seeing that come to fruition, that's the part that I really, really like. Sounds so satisfying. Oh, it is satisfying. You know, you know, though. I know. I wanted to say I love that part too. At the beginning, I agree. I didn't like it because like you said, when you saw the not great data, it made you feel like a failure, but switching the mindset again and treating your customers as your collaborators when mm-hmm. they're giving you that feedback made it feel less alone. And then when they see the improvements, they feel like they were part of it too. Yeah. And they were. Yeah. How about the biggest challenges then when you're developing curriculum? What are some examples of things that you struggle with as part of the process? I think you hit on it actually is that feeling of being kind of alone. I think there's lots of us in this space, oddly, and we, we tend to feel like we're doing things different than the other people in this space. And we're kind of alone because we're the only ones doing this exact thing for this exact group or with this exact product. And one of the challenges is to realize there's a lot that other people are doing that I can learn from. And to realize that I can reach out to other people and we can reach across the product and, you know, talk to each other and say, Hey, I have this way I found of making this better here. I'll tell you now, when you find ways of making things better, can you tell me? And then, uh, then it's better for everybody. I I think that's kind of been a little bit of a challenge. We talk about community all the time and the importance of it in education, but sometimes we forget to build a community for ourselves with this work. So what advice would you give someone who is interested in fostering computational thinking skills in themselves or in others? Where could they start? I think identifying 
kind of what the computational thinking skills are. So, you know, go back and listen to the beginning of the podcast again, <laughs> where we talk about the four pillars and really understand what definition of them, I guess you care about. And then just start noticing, you know, how they say, if you want to start remembering your dreams, you have to start being very aware of them when you first wake up. And then it becomes less and less of something you work at and more and more of something that just happens. The same thing is true with this kind of thing. You have to be more aware. And when you have a problem to solve and you're starting to feel frustrated, reach for it as a tool. Even if you don't know quite how to use it yet, just start going through the steps and saying, can I break this up? Can I relate it to something else? You know, just to start going through the process. And before long, you'll do it kind of automatically. You might not even realize it's happening. And then what if they want to foster it in others, whether they're a parent or an educator or someone developing a product? A lot of that, I think, is done by modeling. I think teachers are already really good at saying, okay, well then when, then what did you do? Then what did you do? You know, ask that kind of question. And it's not that much harder to say, okay, so, so yeah, you're right. This looks like a big, nasty problem. Can we break it up and figure out something we could try first? So what is something we could work on first that would help us feel like we made some progress and, and okay, so let's take that piece. Have you ever done something like this before? You know, kind of ask those questions and they don't have to tell the kids, Hey, third grader, guess what? We're taking you through the steps of computational thinking. Totally. Okay. To just start out with the processes and help kids understand how to deal with these big, nasty problems they encounter every day. And then once they start learning more about it, they'll be able to put, Oh, Hey, that's something I already do when they get the definition for it and and all that kind of stuff later. Right. It sounds like you just want to live and breathe it almost before you talk about it. Well, yeah, that's why I'm bringing this to very little kids is because I want them to just grow up with it and live and breathe it without having to ever get to this place where they feel powerless at the foot of a problem. What good does that do? So the more we can get kids from a very young age to say, I can take a step. I may not be able to do the whole thing right now, but I can take a step and then you feel in control. And that's, that's all I'm asking for. Is that too much to ask? I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to thank you for just continuing to build these generations of computational thinkers and problem solvers. And also thank you for being part of our podcast, Kiki. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. I always love talking about this kind of stuff and I love talking to you. Same here. Thanks for listening to EdTech Adventures. Please subscribe to catch more of our episodes and leave a review to support the show. For more resources and info, visit us at codecombat.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Chang. We'll see you on our next learning adventure.